You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending your Son to become one of us so that through Him, we might become sons and daughters of God. Teach us to treasure your Son in our hearts for His great glory. Amen. Well, welcome, not just to church, but to the strangest part of every year. This is that weird twilight zone between Christmas and New Year's where no one really quite seems to know who they are, what day it is, or what we're supposed to be doing. It's that time where we wander around aimlessly around the house and spend our days eating leftover Christmas ham for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's also that time of year where we, you know, we stumble to the finish line of the year, we virtually give up on the year that has been, and look to the year that will come. In many ways, as we look at today's passage that rounds out Luke chapter 2, it's kind of not that different. It's that strange twilight zone between Jesus' birth and his ministry. If the TV series Young Sheldon is the prequel to Big Bang Theory, this passage kind of closes off the prequel to the rest of Luke's gospel. You see, over these last two chapters, we've seen that Jesus is the long-awaited and long-expected saviour of the world. Jesus, he's the king of heaven, and he's the crux of history. And Luke wants us to be certain, beyond a shadow of doubt, that Jesus is God's Son. That Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. In one sense, these first two chapters, they're they're the prequel to this epic two-volume saga that will follow, first in the Gospel of Luke, and then the Acts of the Apostles. These two chapters show us Jesus' credentials. They show us that only He can save. And as Luke closes off the prequel in this passage, he's kind of giving us a unique insight into Jesus' boyhood, that 30-year twilight zone between his birth and his ministry. No other gospel accounts for this part of Jesus' life. Only Luke. But Luke includes it because he wants us to be certain that Jesus really is God-made man. He wants us to be certain that every single one of us here, Christian or not, we can know Him. So why don't we look together at this final installment in our Advent series. Keep your Bibles open, turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. And here we find uh, two brief scenes. Firstly, Jesus lost, and secondly, Jesus found. Jesus lost, Jesus found. I wonder what's the most valuable item you've ever lost, the most valuable item you've ever left behind. Last year, I was best man at one of my friend's weddings. We were driving to the ceremony at 9.30 in the morning, and suddenly I slammed my brakes, looked at the groom and said, I've forgotten the rings. I I don't think I've ever quite panicked so much in my life uh, at something that I've left behind. I I felt sick in the gut, and he looked at me last night, one year on, and said, you had one job, just one job. Well, imagine how much more gut-churning it must be to suddenly realize that you've left your son back in a totally different city. But that's exactly what's happened to Joseph and Mary here in verses 41 and 42. Let's paint the picture. Jesus is a 12-year-old boy. 
And every year, he and his parents, they travel from Nazareth to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. It's like that time where everyone across Asia returns to their hometowns to celebrate the new year. You know, every year, trains across China are overloaded and buckle under the sheer volume and weight of everyone going home. See, it's not just one family that's making this journey. It's thousands upon thousands of people. So it's not hard to get lost. Let's look at what happens. As soon as the Passover finishes, they do what they need to do. Verse 43 tells us that the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. We read in verse 44 that Joseph and Mary, they assumed that he was in the traveling party. And my favorite part, they went a day's journey. A day's journey. Imagine that. I mean, like they would have traveled about 40 kilometers before realizing that, oh my gosh, where is my son? It's as if you're traveling from here to the airport, except this time you can't slam the brakes and turn the car around because you're traveling on foot. Just imagine how quickly Joseph and Mary would have sprinted back to Jerusalem. If I felt sick in the gut for forgetting my friend's wedding rings, just imagine how much more gut-churning it must be to forget your 12-year-old boy. So, Joseph and Mary, they turn back and they spend three long days trying to find their son. It would have been the three longest days of any parent's life. And then finally... Finally, on the third day, they find him. Where is he? Verse 46 tells us that he's in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. You've lost your boy. You spend three days trying to find him. And where is he? At church. (laughs) Of all places you find your boy, you find him at the very place that you find God. You meet him at the very place you meet God. And there he is, interacting with the very people who teach you about God. And guess what? Your boy is holding his own. Young Sheldon has nothing on young Jesus. So Mary, she now runs up to her son and asks him in verse 48, Son, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. This is the cry of every mother who can't find their child. Mary is beside herself. She asks Jesus, boy, your papa and I, we care so much for you, you don't care, is it? But look at what Jesus says to his mother. This is the best part. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? Next time if you disappear and your parents try that on them, if I said that to my mother, I suspect she'd be within her rights to serve me one. But verse 50 says that his parents did not understand him. In fact, Mary, she kept all these things in her heart. And our scene ends with Jesus increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. And we stop there and we think to ourselves what I thought to myself on Monday morning. What in the world is going on with a scene like this? Why in the world has Luke included this snippet of Jesus' childhood? And I want to suggest to you that when we look closely at this event, we see a very clear message. And here it is. The Son of God became one of us so that we might become sons of God. Let me say that one more time. The Son of God became one of us so that we might become sons of 
God. Let's take that in turn. The Son of God became one of us. You see, what's remarkable, remarkable about this story is actually how unremarkable Jesus is. Do you notice? I mean, in one sense, what happened to him could have happened to, well, any one of us. Indeed, it might have happened to you when you were younger. What we find here is proof positive that notwithstanding his miraculous conception and birth, Jesus really is truly human. Jesus really is one of us. I wonder, did you see that Luke is at pains to point out just how human Jesus really is? Look at verse 42. His timestamp to locate us here, it's not a year, no, it's Jesus' age, when he was 12 years old. Verse 43, he calls Jesus the boy. Could have just said Jesus, but he calls him the boy. He wants to highlight that Jesus really is one of us. He was young like one of us. He grew like one of us. Just like James Way is young James, here we find boy Jesus. And notice that Luke never mentions Joseph and Mary. Their names are conspicuously absent from this passage. Instead, they're his parents. You see, Luke wants us to realize that actually the Son of God became one of us in the fullest possible sense. In fact, he's so much like us that it might even make us feel just a little bit uncomfortable. Look at what happens in verse 46. What's Jesus doing? He's listening, but he's asking questions. Just think about that, right? This 12-year-old boy, who is God's almighty son, doesn't know everything. In fact, this entire event is bracketed by Jesus' human limitation. Verse 40, it, it opens up this scene and it says, The boy Jesus grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. And then all the way down the bottom in verse 52, we round out this scene with a very similar verse, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and with people. You see what Luke is showing us here? Jesus had to be like us in every possible way. He had to grow up like us. He had to become strong like us. He had to mature like us. He even had to learn like us. And if you fast forward further on in Luke's gospel, we find that Jesus is hungry like us. He's thirsty like us. He's tired like us. He's hot like us. And believe it or not, he's even tempted like us. You know, I think it's really easy for us to think that, yep, I know that Jesus is God's son, therefore we think that his experience of human weakness isn't quite the real deal. Subconsciously, we say something like this. Sure, Jesus was tempted, but come on, he's the son of God, so he can't really be tempted like us, can he? It can't be that bad for Jesus, can it? He can't be really human enough to really understand my struggle. But fast forward to moments just before Jesus' arrest. And as we read this part of Luke's gospel, I want you to tell me whether Jesus really understood suffering or not. Listen to this. Then Jesus withdrew from his disciples about a stone's throw, knelt down and began to pray. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. That is his suffering and death. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, 
He prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. See, I don't think we really get how human Jesus really is. And here's the great irony, right? Muslims get it. They get it so much that they reject it as offensive. Because how in the world could God Almighty degrade himself to the point of being a mere human? How could the maker of heaven and earth suffer and die just like one of us? You see, I think if we really understood just how human Jesus really is, we wouldn't ever say that the demands of following him are unfair. Say that one more time. If we really get just how human Jesus really is, I don't think we'd ever say that the demands of following him, that the cost of discipleship is unfair. Because, of all people, Jesus had far greater reason than any one of us to say that the demands of following God the Father were unfair. He had the greatest reason to say that the demands of the cross are unfair. But what does he say? Not my will but yours be done. You see, friends, don't ever think that Jesus doesn't understand the cost of discipleship. Don't ever think that Jesus doesn't understand the struggle of growing up, the pain of conflict with parents and family, or the deep loneliness of dying all alone. Jesus is far more human than you could ever imagine. Well, as much as Jesus is like us, there is a sense in which he's also nothing like us. Because in this event, Luke hints, right, that Jesus is someone otherworldly. He shows us that Jesus isn't just one of us. He's actually the best of us. He isn't just God's son. He is God's perfectly obedient son. Jesus is everything that we were meant to be. I want you to notice those little throwaway details that are in this story. Back in chapter 2, verse 22, uh, Luke highlights that Jesus was born and raised, all what? According to the law of Moses. And here in uh, chapter 2, verse 42, Jesus and his parents went to Jerusalem according to what? The custom of the festival. See, in these little throwaway lines, Luke is saying that every demand of God, every requirement of the law, every standard of perfection, Jesus meets. He is the perfectly obedient son that you and I could never be. And in verse 51, he even submits to his earthly parents, where in one sense, he didn't really have to. There is something fundamentally different about this boy. In verse 46, he's asking the teachers questions, right? But look at verse 47. Everyone's astounded at what? His answers. They're not astounded at his questions, and they're not astounded at everyone else's answers. They're astounded at his answers. Jesus is everything that we were meant to be. He isn't just one of us. No, he's the best of us. You see, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Where you failed, Jesus succeeded. Where I failed, Jesus succeeded. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 assures us with these words. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are. Every way as we are, yet without sin. You see, 
in this strange twilight zone of Jesus' life, we might wonder, what in the world has Jesus been doing for the last 30 years? I mean, if Jesus came to die, why not just die as a baby? Or if Jesus came to die, why, not, why doesn't God just send him as a 30-year-old man and then die then? What's the point of waiting all that time? Well, because all this time, over 30 years of growth and maturity, Jesus was living the perfect life that you and I could never have lived. In one sense, he was rewinding the story of humanity, and he was rewriting it and reliving it in our place. So we often say that Jesus died the death that we should have died, and he did. But he also lived the life that we could never have lived. Let me put it this way. He doesn't simply pay off our debt. He gives us his credit. He doesn't simply absorb our guilt. He gives us his innocence. He doesn't simply bear our sin. He gives us his righteousness. He doesn't simply take our cross. He gives us his crown. But the only way that he can do that for us is if he is one of us. Right? You can't sub someone onto the field if they're not already part of the team. You can't take an AFL player and sub them onto an NBA game. It just doesn't work. Jesus has to be one of us if he is going to live for us. In Jesus, God became man so that he might live the life that we could never have lived and die the death that we should have died. Jesus relives our story. And if he's going to relive our story, he needs to relive it as one of us. It's that wonderful verse of that Christmas carol. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. And here it is. By thine all-sufficient merit, by your totally sufficient goodness, by your perfect life, raise us to thy glorious throne. I want you to know that if we truly get that Jesus had to not just die, but that he had to live for us, that changes absolutely everything. Because it means that we now have the confidence to approach God, not just as if we have done nothing wrong, but we can approach God as if we've done everything right. It almost sounds wrong to say it, doesn't it? You know, we can come to God not just with our shame taken away, but with our shame actually covered by His glory. We can stand before God and not just hear the words, not guilty, we can hear the words, righteous. This is absolutely crazy on one level, because it means that even when we struggle with sin, even when we stumble and fall, we can come before God through Jesus and God will look at us and say, sinless, righteous, perfect. Because when he looks at us stained by sin, he will see his son full of glory. And then we can sing what we're not singing today. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. You see, friends, can you see why God became man? Can you see why Jesus' life really matters? He doesn't just deal with our shame, no, he gives us his glory. He doesn't just restore us to Eden, no, he takes us to Zion. He takes those who were his enemies he forgives their sin, and then he makes them his sons. The Son of God became one of us. 
so that we might become sons of God. You know, there's a great irony that runs throughout this story, and it's almost painful. If you look at verse 44, Joseph and Mary, they're, they're looking for their lost child. And where they're looking for him? Among their relatives and friends. But they cannot find him there. And it's actually no accident that Jesus can't be found among his earthly family. Because fundamentally, at heart, Jesus belongs to a far greater family. And if you're a Christian, so do we. In fact, Jesus belongs so much to that greater family that he's even willing to disobey his earthly parents, put them through three days of grief. You see, for many of us here, it's quite similar to actually that of the life of a first century Jew. Family is actually the most important unit of life. In one sense, we don't get to define who our family is. Our family defines who we are. Family gives us identity. Family gives us life. And that's why the worst thing in the world, right, is to be disowned by your family. Because it's the loss of who we are. And in many cultures, being rejected by your parents or your family is death enough. And if I can be so presumptuous as to make this guess, I suspect that for many of us here, seeking our parents' acceptance and approval is one of the greatest desires of our hearts. And if that's the case... It actually makes what Jesus says all the more remarkable. But look at what happens. Verse 48, Mary comes along, quite a reasonable expression. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Then what does Jesus say in the next verse? Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? Just think about that, right? Mary just said, your father, as, as in Joseph. But Jesus now comes along and says, my father as in God. In one sense, he's kind of setting up this contrast between who is his real father. Here's a tip. Go home and try to say that to your dad. See what happens. Why are you home so late? Your father and I have been worried about you. It's past your curfew. Well, you know what? You're not my father. I have a greater father. I belong to a greater family and I have a greater loyalty. Look, something tells me that many of our fathers probably won't react overly positively to you saying that. They'll probably say like, huh? I brought you into this world. I can easily take you out of it. But Jesus dares to say it. He dares to say it. It was necessary for me to be in my father's house, or we might say, to be about my father's business, to be among my father's people. You see, in that time and place, everyone would have expected Jesus to follow in his father Joseph's footsteps. They would have expected him to become a carpenter. And so Jesus says, well, I am going to follow in my father's footsteps. But my true father is God. And I'll be about his business. I'll be among his people. I'll bring them into his house. I'll make them his children. I wonder, did you notice that little phrase, it was necessary, it was necessary. That little phrase is actually used 18 times in Luke's gospel. And in eight of those times, Luke uses it to describe Jesus saving death. So in Luke 9.22, this is what he says. It is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. How in the world will Jesus make us sons of God? How in the world will Jesus bring us into God's family? By dying for us by taking the punishment for our disobedience against our Heavenly Father. 
Jesus, God's son, will be willingly disowned, abandoned and rejected by God in our place. You see, in his death, Jesus, in one sense, is kicked out of God's house on account of our disobedience. And in his life, he brings us back into God's house on account of his perfect obedience. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be in his father's house? Why was it necessary for Jesus to be about his father's business and among his father's people? So that he might make us sons of God. You see, friends, what Jesus is doing. He's creating a whole new family here. And he's inviting you and me to be part of it. With God as our father and Jesus as our brother. Jesus left God's house so that you and I might be brought in. He was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. He was abandoned so that we might be adopted. If someone comes up to you later tonight and asks you, Who are you? What would you say? I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I'm a husband, a wife, a friend, or a lover. No, we are who we are because of who Jesus is. Jesus, from eternity past, is God's Son. And so you and I, if we trust in Him, are children of God like Him. If someone asks you, who are you? Maybe start with your name. And then after that, I am a child of God. Because our fundamental identity is that we are sons and daughters of God. You see, we're not like God's children. We're not similar to His children. No, we are His children in the deepest possible sense. And just as Jesus was committed to be in His Father's house and about His Father's business, you and I, all of us who trust in Jesus, must do the same. You may stone me outside the campsite, but our life decisions should not be driven by what our parents desire. We live to please not our earthly parents, but our heavenly Father. Because our fundamental identity is as sons and daughters of God. We need to be about His business, and God is in the business of saving sinners. We need to take up His family trade. And whatever job we might have, I want to tell you, all power to you, it's probably great, but it is secondary to our family trade, to our primary vocation, to call sinners home. Because we belong to a greater family. We have a greater father. And we have Jesus, our eternal brother. I wonder what you felt or thought when you read verse 48. Look at it. What do you feel? Because I suspect that many of us have actually heard these very words spoken to us by our own parents. Son, daughter, why have you treated us like this? And when we think about our parents, we can't help but feel a bit like failures. Or disappointments. And all we want to do, this is the worst part about it, we feel like failures and disappointments, and yet the thing that we want to do more than anything else is to please them, is to gain their approval, is to make them proud. But all we ever hear, or what it seems like all we ever hear from them, is you're never good enough. Why have you treated us like this? And I know that for some of you, it, the, the cost of following Jesus has actually been the rejection of your family. But I want you to know that Jesus has made you a child of God. And not just any child of God. Here's the greatest part of this, right? Jesus has made you a child, a son, like he is. Right? Not just any child, 
a child like he is. But in the next chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to be baptized. And then God the Father will speak from heaven with these words, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. They are God's words to his son Jesus. And here's the glory of it all. Because Jesus has made us God's sons like him. They are God's words to us as well. Isn't that remarkable? The Son of God became one of us so that we might become sons of God. You see, friends, whatever your earthly parents may say to you, whatever words are seared into your memory, I want you to hear what God the Father said to Jesus and what he now says to all of us who trust in him on Jesus' account. You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. I'm going to hold on to that for a very long time. You know, throughout Luke 1 and 2, we've seen that Jesus alone can save us. As the one who is both truly God and truly man, he alone is qualified to save sinners. Only Jesus can fulfill God's every promise in the Old Testament. Only Jesus can reign over the house of Jacob forever. Only Jesus can satisfy the hungry and send the rich away empty. Only Jesus can provide redemption for his people. Only Jesus can be our Savior, Messiah, and Lord. Only Jesus can bring us home to God, our Father. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending your Son to become one of us so that through him we might become sons and daughters of God. Teach us to treasure your Son in our hearts for his glory. Amen.